escapingthecave.com, and at ETCPod on Twitter. Escaping the cave. And I'm getting really sick of guys named Todd. Zilla X-Pod. Todd Zilla X-Pod. Howdy, Tonzilla Files, and welcome to another episode of Escaping the Cave, the Tonzilla X-Pod on the ChristopherMedia.net network, also over on iTunes, all your favorite podcatchers, and you can get me at ETCPod on Twitter. Facebook page, it's on its last breaths. Don't bother with it. <laughs> and if you're there and you haven't hit the subscribe button yet, like I've been telling you, hey, you should get it. You should subscribe. It's not going to be hand-delivered to the Zucker Beast anymore. I can promise you that. Hope you're having a good week so far. Today is Thursday, June 27th, as I sit here and record this in the wee hours of the morning. <laughs> Had this plan. <laughs> Whenever I tell you I have a plan, take that with a grain of salt, huh? <laughs> I thought I was going to do like three or four podcasts this week. It doesn't work out that way. It never does. I don't know why I do that. I should, I, I should have like an electric choker around my neck. And when I proclaim that I'm going to do something, it should just go off and knock me on the floor with blood spurting from my butthole. It just doesn't go that way usually. And this week's another example. <laughs> I thought I was going to take this uh, podcast. I've got um, a bunch of stuff that I put together before the last one as I was outlining it. It went another direction. I mentioned that in the last pod. And I figured I would just take a chunk of that, throw a half hour up again, maybe today, throw another half hour, maybe 45 minutes up on Friday, maybe Saturday as well. And then, you know, I went back and I started reading this Andrew Sullivan article again. In fact, I went and printed it up. And when I went through reading it, it occurred to me, you need to understand what's in this article. It's 7,300 words or something like that. Now, I, I fancy myself a bit of a hack writer. I like to write. I've done a lot of writing, travel-based stuff mostly. And, but the longest thing that I've ever written, and I'm long-winded, uh, is about 6,000 words. And that was in 2008, after hanging out with God's Bikers out in North Carolina. Hell of a day that was. 6,000 words. It took me hours upon hours upon hours. The last line of that blog, my hands hurt. Because they did. I had been poking into that computer all day long. And that was 6,000 <laughs> questionably edited words. This is 7,300. And I don't know, if I were his editor, what to cut. This is all relatively important stuff if you want to understand the social media disease, the distraction, what it's doing to us individually, and what it's doing to us collectively. Again, I've said before that this is, for me personally, it's an opinion here, this, is, this article affected me more than just about anything else that I have read in a decade. It's right up there with the Glenn Beck article, as far as that one pertained to the media ecology and how they make money and product and all that. As far as a, on a personal level, it's one of the most important things personally that I've read. And continuing on with this theme, the social media disease theme, it seems really clear to me that this should be put forth. So that's what I'm going to do. And it's long. I don't know how long this is going to take me. Uh, but that's what I'm going to do. First, though, I want to give you a quick update because what I, what, something else I've decided to do, and this is... Influenced by this article, by the Sullivan article, because it's one thing, I think, to sit here and tell you what you should do or what I think you should do. That's not the effectiveness of this opus that Andrew Sullivan wrote three years ago. The effectiveness of this is that there's insight in there that is reinforced by his personal experience. This is what happened to me here. Take it Chew on it. See if it resonates with you. See if you relate to what happened to me. Is this happening to you too, maybe? And he has supporting documentation, study, research, all that stuff that writers do. So what I think I want to do as I sit here and start my um, in the digital pre-tox, as I get ready to shut this Facebook page down, doing some other things, I'm gonna, I, I, I can't go completely dark uh, like he did. I can't do that because I have nothing to replace it with other than this. And if I'm doing this, 
I'm not going completely dark anyway. I have to be online one way or another, right? I can't just dis- disconnect from the internet and do a podcast at the same time. I guess technically I could. I could hire somebody, I guess, to walk into this this studio and upload it. <laughs> but no, that just seems silly. So anyway, this is this is what's going on with me this week as I try to do this, and I'm not I'm not having much success, and I I. <clears throat> I don't know how this is going to go. I, I, I imagine that if my history, as I've tried this before, with different varying degrees of success, my history says that it's going to be fits and starts, stop and go, on and off sorts of things. And this week, the last few days, as I've sort of prepared myself to do this, it hasn't been real good. <laughs> Uh, I'm not withdrawing as much as I would like to. I'm not posting anything, really, not much outside of the podcast stuff, although I did a little bit today as I try to um, hmm, sort of tailor or maybe alter what I'm giving or feeding or posting to the people that I am going to keep in touch with. Like I think what I would like to do personally is to eliminate the political ramblings to everyone, to random people, to a random collection of people. People that aren't interested in politics, I don't want to be posting politics stuff. People who aren't interested in this stuff, I don't want to throw it at them. I don't want to spam their their feed. I've, I've talked about this before. It, I, it's not a new idea, but I've never been able to do it. <laughs> it always sort of just seeps back in there because I'm writing or I'm podcasting something. It just Maybe it's just habit. I don't know. Maybe it's just my egocentric and narcissistic need to tell you what I think. I don't know what that is. But if that's the case, what I need to do is I need to be putting that stuff right here and not into the... Facebook feed. And it's not why people are there, most of them. And the people who are there that want that stuff, they know this is here. They can come and get it. So I don't want to be shitting on people anymore. When they log on to their Facebook account, they've had a long day at work, longer day at work than I have. I don't think maybe they want to come home and be called an asshole or an idiot. Maybe. <laughs> It could be. <laughs> my network or my group of people on Facebook is going to be really small. It's really small now, uh, and it's going to be curated. There's not going to be any political pundits in there. If you're a propaganda farting flesh bot, and that's who thinks they're Marcus Aurelius, and are posting things constantly all day long, you're not going to be in there. You won't be reaching me. Let's put it that way. I'm sure your fans enjoy your flesh spot activities, uh, but no, I don't want to be seeing it because it's going to drag me into that negativity pit. And yeah, it puts me at risk of falling back into the cycle that I don't want to fall back into. So what about Twitter? That's the the wild card. Because that right now is the worst um, source of toxicity uh, that I've got. And I mentioned in the last pod that I was hanging out right around 25 people that I was following in that feed. As of right now, Thursday morning, two days later, it's down to 12. 12 people. And one of those, let me make sure I've got this right. It's either 12 or 13. Let me look here. Oh, I'm sorry, it's 14 right now. It will be 13 after next week. (laughs) I've got one guy in there who's muted. He's one of those uh, propaganda farting flesh bots. And I've got him in there because we had an exchange about this whole Wayfair outrage. And what I told him was, I'm going to get back to you in a week. And if this whole thing's blown over and the outrage mob has ejaculated upon its chest and moved on to something else... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chime in and say, hey, you didn't change the world with your protest. That's why he's in there. That is the only reason. And he's going to go away as soon as I do that. I may have a stroke of uh, mercy hit me in the next couple of days, and I may just nuke him anyway and not bother with it. <laughs> 
He'll understand. Maybe do him a favor. Maybe he'll appreciate your friendly neighborhood Toddzilla a little bit more if I do show him that act of kind mercy, that kindness of not holding it, whatever. Anyway, yeah, I'm going to have I'm at 13 people right now. And I'm going to go through and look at it. What do I have here? I've got that guy. I've got um, sort of a quote machine. i got Justin Amash in there because I am interested in what he's doing. Uh, he is standing his ground as he is an island in a turbulent sea doing something that I haven't seen from a politician in a really long time. I don't know that I've ever seen it. Maybe I have. I can't think of it right now. But John McCain would be proud of his maverickness, in my view. I've got a uh, guy from Nigeria that I found who's sort of a conduit to... There's some really good things coming out of Africa, believe it or not, on social media. Maybe I'll get into that some other time. I've got my friend over there in France. I've got Bo Weingard from the IDW, who's sort of on double-secret probation. I don't want the IDW tether to my Facebook because he'll retweet somebody, and then I've got to see something from, I don't know, James Lindsay or something like that, right? So... I've got him in there, uh, one, because he followed me, <laughs> and uh, B, uh, because he is one of the few guys, one of the few social media quote-unquote influencers out there who seems to ask almost as many questions as he makes proclamations. He seems to be thinking and asking rather than just dictating, and I like that. There's another guy in here who wrote a book called uh, Not So Fast, Thinking Twice About Technology. So, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Andrew Sullivan, of course. Uh, Yuval Harari, the author of uh, Sapiens. Got him in here. He doesn't post much. Jonathan Haidt and Nicholas Carr. Nicholas Carr doesn't follow anyone on Twitter. (laughs) No one, and he hardly ever posts. But I've got him in there anyway, and of course, uh, Jonathan Haidt, you know why. And it looks like three... uh, Two podcasts plus the ChristopherMedia.net network uh, on Regimented and Sporgy. Two shows that I've been on, and I want to sort of show them support. And that's all I've got in there. And one of the things that I saw that came out of Nigeria, I know it's not based there. I know it's not a, a foundational thing, but I got it from this little group that this guy is sort of a part of called Take Twitter Back. And one of the things that uh, one of those people put forth was to suggest that you get rid of anybody who's not adding anything to what it is you're looking for. And don't follow them expecting a follow back. Another one of the stupidest things I've ever heard of. I'll follow you, you follow me, and I'll show you mine, you show me yours. No. If they have something that you want, something you value, if they're making a contribution to whatever it is you're doing or seeking, thinking about, then you follow them. Don't expect them to follow you back. And don't get pissed off if they don't. But it's something that I kind of took to heart. And that's what led to these other 13 or 15 people being blown out of my Twitter feed earlier tonight. What are you adding? I just have you in there because I'm afraid, oh, you're one of those podcast people. Oh, you've got 5,000 followers. I want you to retweet me. And if I unfollow you, are you going to unfollow me and then not retweet me? What are you doing, Todd? Gone. About four or five of those folks. I think that'll help a great deal. Looking at it for the last, uh, I don't know, a few times over the last couple of hours since I've done this, uh, it has been nice. That feed is quiet. Except for Andrew Sullivan's, that poor guy. Uh, I mentioned that he doesn't really do much on Twitter. Well, the Democratic debates, the first one, uh, was tonight. And he decided to break his Twitter celibacy and posted a couple of things. Uh, on the debate, and I'll tell you, I mentioned spit roasting in another podcast, how I expect it to come my way. (laughs) This guy was just gang-piled. Gang-piled. People talking about his HIV diagnosis, all sorts of shit. Just gang-piled. Some of the most vile things I've I know, it's just Twitter. It's just Twitter. It's just Twitter. Welcome to Twitter. Fuck you. And it dawned on me while I was outside smoking, just after I saw that, some of the most vile things I've ever, well, I shouldn't say that because I've seen some pretty vile things, but these are right up there, right? And it dawned on me that all these people that are whining and crying 
about buzzwords like fag or the N-word. They're whining about a word, yet these are the same people that are going onto somebody's profile and directly just brutalizing and savaging someone with this stuff? And you're worried about a word? Kiss my ass. What the hell is wrong with you? I'm not innocent here. I, I Maybe I sound like I've hijacked the pulpit and I'm preaching a little bit. A little bit out of school. I've done this, and I, you know, I still have the urge. I talked about this, I don't know, a month ago. I, I, I understand it. But I think the trick here is, is to take a detached, a detached perspective and a detached position where I'm not participating in any of this. Where this is literally a zoo. Where everything that's going on inside of Twitter is inside the Twitter cage while I'm safely detached and protected from the wildlife outside of it. Watching. I have got to get there. I have got to get to that point where I do not have that twitch, that convulsive twitch to drop my thoughts on people all the damn time, every minute of every day. If I have something to say, I have my platform, in front of my mouth right now. And I will always have to sit on it. I won't be able to run in here and scream into a microphone and get it out there. I mean, I technically could. I won't. (laughs) I'll write it down. I'll put it someplace. So when I'm ready to record or I'm ready to outline, I'll have my material. It will have settled. Sifted down perhaps through the more reasoned part of my brain. And maybe, just maybe, I don't know. But this this reactionary, I mean, I felt it tonight while I was while I was reading that 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 filth being chucked at Sullivan because he decided to make a comment on the debates. I had it, man. I could feel that simian primate just barbaric urge welling up inside of my gut. I was, you know, getting the 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 fingers ready. Here we go. And I just you got to step away. Chris and I talked about this. Maybe maybe with uh, Rich a little bit as well. <laughs> you just have okay. Breathe. You you don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. You don't just step the hell away. Go eat a donut. Have some chips. Here here's some dip. Go have a cigarette. Anything. And after ten years of doing this. After 10 years of feeding that twitch, feeding the twitch, after 10 years, it's really difficult not to indulge it. It's almost become habit. I'm noticing this. I mean, the, the habit has been, has been uh, derailed, deterred a little bit. Because now there's this reaction thing. I'm going to get to this in a little while. I'll mention it a little bit right now. I have a, a history with drinking. And I have a history of doing really, I don't know, self-destructive things when I drink. And it's dawned on me that my online behavior over the last 10 years has really uncomfortably mirrored my drunken behavior for the previous 20. Not giving a shit. Woo, yeah! Let's do it! Fuck it! We'll worry about it tomorrow, man! Woo! In the last 10 years or so, now it's not even that long, last five years, I've noticed that when I drink, which is not very often anymore, I can count it on one hand how many times a year I drink. And one of those is almost always New Year's. It's just not part of my life anymore. But when I do, even if I've only had a few drinks, just gotten, you know, the nice happy glow, the nice happy buzz about me, having a good time, I'll come home happy. I'll tell myself, I'll know, yeah, nothing went wrong tonight. That was fun. Woo! I'll drift off to sleep. The next morning, I'll wake up, and there's almost a PTSD thing going out in my head where I feel just the default setting is ashamed. What the fuck did I do last night? Oh, my God. What happened? What? And I can sit here. And I can remember telling myself before I went to bed that everything was cool. I won't believe it. I'll have to ask my girlfriend. 
Did I do anything stupid last night? You sure that, uh, yeah, was I just, was I too much to, to myself? <laughs> Did I freak those guys out? That kind of thing. And she'll look at me, she'll raise an eyebrow, just look at me like, no. But it doesn't help. It does not help. I still feel it. For a good part of the day until it sort of dissipates and goes away. And I've noticed, I'm getting the same thing with social media now. With some of the stuff that I'm posting. Like, I'll put something out there, it'll either expose a vulnerability, personal vulnerability with me, or I'll post something that after 10 minutes or so, that PTA, what did you do? What did you do? Get back in, get that out of there. It's the same damn thing. It's really bizarre. I do not know what to think of this. I don't know what to make of it. And I don't mean to diminish anybody who's been in combat or who actually does have PTSD. That's why I, I hesitate to call it that. But for the, for the love of Christ, that's exactly what it feels like. <laughs> Post-traumatic social media disorder. It, it's weird. And I think a lot of that, as I talked about in that podcast maybe four or five uh, episodes ago where I was talking about uh, my hometown and all that, I think this has something to do with those purges that I've been executing for the last four or five years as I try to force myself in sort of a manic state to cut the cord. There's something going wrong here. There is something going wrong in my head that has to do with this technology, with this constant connectivity, with just the loss of simple human decency, my own, and the effects it's having, the results of it. It's doing something to me psychologically, something really fucking weird. I do not know what it is. My case in my example is different than Sullivan's, but not completely. There are a lot of similarities in there. But he's a public figure. You know, 100,000 followers on his blog and shit. I'm Todd Zilla on the internet. <laughs> I have a podcast. A Todd Zilla X-Bot for years. I'm, I'm nobody. So all of my interactions and all the damage and and stuff that I have done hasn't been done to, to anonymous listeners, anonymous people on the internet. It's been done, done to people I give a shit about. People I care about. But simultaneously, as I've sort of taken up different, I don't know, hobbies, over the last 10 years, you know, writing, photography, now podcasting, even the video work that I did for a little while, everything was online. Everything is based online. Every quote-unquote product that I've put forth in the last 11 years has been put forth inside the marketplace on cyberspace. All of my relationships are, have been maintained via the Internet. A lot of that's from the traveling. A lot of that's from living in nine different places over the last 11 years, different parts of the country. So pick up, move, pick up, move, pick up, move. Hey, well, hey, I can stay in touch with you on Facebook, you know. But over time, what's happened is, is that avatar takes over and starts screaming into the void. It's not a void. There are people on the other end of these computer screens, on the Facebook accounts, People who had no idea, and I empathize with you folks down, down around Hiltucky, and, and you radio folks as well, and a lot of other people, the traveling folks, I empathize with this because you never saw this part of me. And you sit down, oh, hey, there's Todd. What the hell is that? Oh, my God. I've seen this happen from my end with other people as well. But I was never really concerned with being fair about it being empathetic, trying to see it from their point of view, from my end. It's an over-amplified, one-dimensional projection of just one single part of who we are. There's no nuance, no multidimensionality to it, just a raging political junkie or social junkie. 
raging all the time about the same thing, showing no nuance personally. I have a lot of different interests. <laughs> well, not as many as I used to. So maybe that's a, a symptom and an indication of something else that needs to be looked at as well. Maybe I am too one-dimensional now. But these avatars, these digitally enhanced, exaggerated, over-amplified avatars are not accurate representations of who we are. It's the old radio thing. Your radio personality is you times ten. <laughs> I always hated that. Because <laughs> me times ten? <laughs> I don't know. But now when you get online, and you've got your public relations campaign, your, your PR avatar, this little crafted image, sculpted image, oh, I'd like to look like this, and I'd like to people to think I'm like this, and I'd like to, I'd like, eh. it, it's you times a hundred. I'm not going to include everybody in this. I know a lot of people who are quite reasonable and calm and diverse and pretty much the person they are in person when they get online. <laughs> a lot of us ain't. A lot of us ain't, man. And I think it's the ones, those of us who aren't, that are feeding on something ugly. And that ugly thing, that's what I'm concerned with. I don't know where this is going. And it's not affecting just a few people either. It's a lot of us. A lot of us are drunk, just as I was for, for I don't know, seven, eight years. A lot of us are just as drunk right now as anybody else. We don't know we're drunk. We're just feeling good. We know that feeling when we get to the bar, right? <laughs> you have those couple of beers and you're just feeling, yeah. Are you drunk? Have you reached .08 yet? Do you think you ought to be driving the car? If you're blowing a .16, even though you feel like you can control the car, you can drive down the inner, you feel like you can drive down the highway at 95, safe as anyone. Oh, my senses are sharpened. No, they're not. You're drunk. You're not thinking rationally and carefully. You don't give a shit what happens to you or anybody else. You feel invincible. Nothing can happen to you because you're feeling it. I never put that together, I don't think, before this week. But a lot of that is the same feeling <laughs> without the stumbling around the, the living room and puking. <laughs> and the hang Well, now I'm getting the hangovers. That I got back in my drinking days when I was incredibly self-destructive. I just didn't give a fuck. The loss of inhibition, that's what it is. You're not inhibited in any way, shape, or fashion. Where alcohol takes that away, chemically, the internet does it psychologically, via an anonymity, a lack of first-person accountability, and this notion, this idea in your head, that you've created a bulletproof avatar, a self-image that exists online and nobody can touch you. they got to get through the avatar bodyguard in order to get to you. And that avatar is strong. You could be a meek little, I don't know, 4 foot 11, 98 pound quadriplegic sitting behind that computer screen. But when you can get to the text editor, you're the rock. Right? You can be anybody you want to on the internet. You can sit there and you can craft your flesh bot propaganda dispatches. And you can edit them. You can go back and re-edit them, at least on Facebook. On Twitter, you don't like something, delete it, repost it. How many times do you think, I do this a lot, and I, <clears throat> I've i started to do it. It's obvious that I do it on Facebook. That's how I write. I throw stuff down, <laughs> right? And then I go back and edit later. I do a stream of consciousness thing first, and then I go back and I, I basically decorate my writing later on, edit it, stuff like that. How many first drafts of these witty propaganda avatars, these flesh bots, how many first drafts do you suppose you see? Now, they're always going to tell you, I just spit it out like that. Bullshit. I'll bet you, I'll lay money on this. Won't ever be able to prove it, but I'd lay money on it. That there are people who have a word processing program open where they can craft their missives. 
and edit their missives before they share these nuggets of genius and wisdom with the world. It's image, man. It's a propaganda campaign. A personal propaganda campaign. A PPR. You down with PPR? Yeah, you know me. Sorry. Oh, yeah. This is difficult. This is really hard. I, I, um, you know, I, I got to talk about the damage that I've done over the, since 2008, the end of 2008, when I opened that first Facebook account. I've had more than one. I'll do that when we come back. Listen to the Escaping the Cave podcast on the ChristopherMedia.net network. Give me an ETC pod over on Twitter. All your favorite pod catcher apps. <laughs> well, I got in touch with those guys in Chicago. I used to play their music quite a bit on the old podcast. Played it a couple times on this one. They're called uh, the Limbos. Ryan Mira and his friends. Such a great little band. This is one of theirs. It's called 500 Pesos. Very southwest feel. Ryan's from uh, Santa Fe. I think we might have been neighbors at some point in time. But uh, check out their stuff over on Spotify. Send them a few shekels, buy an album or something. It's really good stuff, man. I'm going to at some point be featuring some in future podcasts. But I think this is going to be one of my new music beds. This is great. Anyway, I was talking uh, before I went to uh, self-medicate with nicotine and grab some caffeine about the damage that uh, personally I have uh, done to myself uh, over the last uh, 11 years. And it does. It feels a lot like some of the things that happened uh, when I was a raging drunk back in the 1990s, early 2000s. You get to that point where you've got your avatar up and he's roaming around. It's got its armor on and it hops online and starts to rage righteous battle with the evil forces in the world, (laughs) right? And you feel invincible. You feel like there's no accountability. Nothing can happen. And all these things, all these people these representations of people that you see in front of you, they're not real. Or if they are real, it doesn't matter because they're not real right now. They're just right there in front of you. And you can get to the point very quickly where you're so intoxicated, I guess maybe with the power, especially if you're good at this, especially if you're good at being, <laughs> I don't know, uh, Triumph, the insult comic avatar, where you just don't, you don't care what happens anymore. You don't care about the damage done to the relationships. This has been a big deal, and I, I think it's been exasperated over the last 10 or 11 years because I've moved around so much that everybody in my life, with the exception of my girlfriend and her family, were temporary. This started when the traveling began. When the people that I was meeting and associating myself with were only there briefly, or maybe a ride, or maybe some people that I met on the road and connected with via social media, whatever, were around for a month or so and then just sort of drifted off. There's this line in um, Fight Club where the guy is talking about his single-serving friends, and he thinks he's being all witty and stuff, but I understand completely what he's talking about. It got worse with the traveling around Latin America. Where these folks that I would meet, we'd hang around for a little while, maybe as long as 10 days with some of them. But they were gone. They'd go their way, I'd go mine. That was that. The friendship, for all intents and purposes anyway, ended right there. We've also moved around. We went from Michigan to Florida to Santa Fe to Taos to Denver, back to Santa Fe to Chicago to Massachusetts, and now back to Michigan over the course of the last 14, 15 years. Returning to Michigan a year ago. So all the friends that I made, if there were any, weren't close. They all basically withered away and eventually died because we moved. So everything became temporary at some point. 
Like everybody's going away eventually. So if you have that in your head, as I did, it gets real easy to just cut people off. I mean, that, that eventually at some point in time becomes the norm. You get used to it. Or I did anyway. I, I, I didn't put a lot of stock in this for a long time. I met my, uh, my dad's family via Facebook. We reconnected with the, the two sisters that I had met earlier uh, way back in the mid-90s. Uh, we reconnected via Facebook in 2008. And then in 2009, early part of 2009, through them I connected with the rest of that side of my family, whom I had never met, never had any kind of conversation with whatsoever. This all happened through Facebook. I mean, at that point in time, in 2009, this was some incredible technology. It was opening doors at a rate and a pace that was unheard of. It was so easy suddenly to reconnect with people you had no contact with. We had our virtually had our 20th, 20-year graduation reunion. On Facebook, it's really easy for me to sit here and condemn the technology and condemn the platform for what it's become. And maybe I'm right about that. I think there's a really good argument to be made for that. But looking back on it objectively, with clear eyes from that perspective, from that point of view in 2009, this was some incredible shit. It didn't get a billion subscribers because it sucked. And this all coincided with the hitchhiking. I was going into my second full year of it, the trips out east with Chris. He was going through some sort of reconciliation in his mind with his family, with his past, with his childhood. I did the same thing with my hometown. Went back there for a month. That was the first time that I had spent any significant time there in 12 years. It all coincided with a 20-year reunion. It coincided with the good part of Facebook before the ground went sour. It was incredible. The doors that opened up when I joined in 2008 to the summer of 2009 are astounding. <laughs> it's almost like a perfect storm in some weird way. The 20-year reunion, the family, the old friends, being able to connect with old radio people, that I thought had just vanished off the face of the earth and be able to stay in touch and contact with them easily from across the country. Find them, stay in contact with them. Well, I'm living in New Mexico or Denver or wherever I was. I was in New Mexico at the time. It was fantastic. I got as drunk as anybody on that. And as time went on over the year, I personally met Two of my sisters, a brother, and two nephews in 2009. Uh, I wound up hitchhiking <laughs> from um, Wyoming all through the Dakotas and out to Boise where my sister... Well, let me, let me rewind because I met the, the initial one first. Uh, I met Michelle uh, at the end of May. I met her with Chris. We came from Massachusetts. We got a ride to her place in Ohio. Met her for the first time that day. A surreal experience, meeting your middle-aged sister for the first time at the age of 38. Somebody you've heard about your whole life, knew was out there, and all of a sudden, there she is. And it was awesome. We connected, we got along, we started to bond over just sitting there talking about what we knew and comparing stories. I mean, it was great. And that led to something else. And that led to meeting my brother, Mike. It led to the second and final meeting with my father. With my dad. For the second time in my life, after what a 20 or a 40 minute get-together at a food court at a mall in the year 2000. Here it is in 2009, and I'm spending two, three hours at his house. All because of Facebook. All because we were able to connect and get to know each other and make these things happen. I met my two nephews at Michelle's place, her sister's two boys. And I told them while we're sitting there, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come out and see you guys later on this year. I'm going to hitch out that way. 
And they just sort of looked at her like teenagers, 14, 15. Yeah, sure you are. Okay, whatever. Nice meeting you. (laughs) And later on that summer, it's exactly what I did. I got dropped off in Wyoming. I went over to Devil's Tower. I hooked up with his Leslie chick and uh, her friend. Did the Chris McCandless pilgrimage to Carthage in South Dakota. Hitchhiked back west and found a ride all the way from Billings to Boise. And we got into Idaho. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to be at your place tonight. I should call. This dude dropped me off at a Krispy Kreme in Boise. And I met my sister for the very first time. The second one in, what, three months at a Krispy Kreme. And again, it was a replay of exactly what had happened in Ohio a few months earlier. It was freaking great to put a face, an organic face with a story, with an abstract human being that you've known about your whole life, wondered about your whole life, a half-sister that was out there somewhere. And went over to her house. I met her husband. (laughs) There's Ben and Brad again. I told you. I told you I was going to hitchhike out here. You didn't believe me, did you? No. (laughs) Well, you're right. And it was one of the most wonderful weeks of my life. They're drinking these rum runners that her husband made every night, sitting out on their deck, reminiscing, telling stories, getting to know each other, and again, comparing notes, just as I had with Michelle a few months earlier. We bonded over this stuff. And I, I wrote a post that year. It's one of the, one of the favorites of a lot of people. And I, I called it Becoming Family because I thought we had. And something in me, calmed the hell down all of a sudden at the end of 2009. Briefly. (laughs) But it did. It was just like, "Ah, that's better. (sighs) And again, all of this because of Facebook. All of this triggered by social media. But, well, to finish in 2009, my, my girlfriend and I, we were getting close enough uh, Lynette, Michelle, and I, that my girlfriend and I drove from Santa Fe to Boise for New Year's. We got in the car and went up there and hung out. Michelle was there. Lynette was there. I was there. My girlfriend was there. This was the first time my girlfriend had ever spent any significant time with me around my family. At that point, we had been together for seven years. She'd never seen me with family. Not really. And it showed her, she was like, that was just something, it was good to see that. And like, yeah, kind of. That was new. Last time I saw Michelle was out in uh, Ohio in August of 2010. My brother Mike and I hung out, go out to Boise, hung out with Mike and Lynette this time. Everything was fine. But the next year, something happened. I, the last time I saw Lynette and Dave, her husband, Uh, They had flown down to Cancun, and I was on my first trip in Mexico. This is in 2011. My girlfriend's birthday was in April. Her 30th birthday coincided with their trip and me being in Mexico. So she flew down, met up with me. We met up with them, and the four of us just hung out in Cancun. But that was the last time I saw him. I don't know what happened. Everything just dried up. So thinking back to what I was talking about in 2009-2010, I had given myself a sense of hope, if not with my dad, at least with this family that I had found. There was going to be something to build on moving forward for the rest of our lives, as family, as brothers and sisters. I felt accepted into that family, at least a part of it, at least enough, to where that part of me could finally deal with itself. But then, by 2011, done. To this day, I do not know what happened. Something happened to me that day, though. The day I realized what was going on, something changed. I have never given this enough weight, I don't think. Because I'm used to it by now, right? As I was saying, people go away. This was different. I didn't expect this to happen. And when it did... I don't know. I'm trying to think back to it. I'm trying to think to the moment. And I don't think it was a moment. I think it was a process. It wasn't like a switch went off. But whatever I was channeling, 2009, 10, as 
things sort of shifted to politics with me on Facebook. It went away from the traveling and all that and being funny and cute and all this other stuff to really just focusing on politics. I know what happened. It was Sarah Palin and the Tea Party, middle end of 2009. That's what got me moving in that direction. So for about a year and a half, I think I was getting progressively more intense, more relentless with it. I don't know. I'd have to go back (laughs) and really think about this. I didn't really uh, lay all this out before I sat down and started talking about it. But the bottom line is this. This is indisputable. Something changed drastically in 2011, sometime around June, where I was out of touch with Michelle. I was out of touch with Lynette. Mike and I stayed in touch. Uh, We actually saw each other later in in 2011, but that was the last time I saw him, too. Something happened in 2011. I don't know what. Now, to bring things back full circle, what I think happened was what I was talking about before, that these people only knew me through the get-to-know-you stuff on Facebook through the phone conversations, the chats that we had had at their house when we met. Again, I'm just speculating here. I don't think we had built enough personal capital for them to be able to endure and weather Donzilla. A lot of other people, other family members like cousins, people I never met, people I didn't even know existed, were contacting me and adding me to Facebook after I met Lynette and Michelle and contacted them and all that, they slowly started vanishing over the course of time. Never really talked to them or anything, but they vanished too. What's the common denominator here? They got sick of Toddzilla. They got sick of the political ranting. They did not like that over-amplified aspect of me. I poorly represented myself to them. They weren't political, None of them were really political that I'm aware of. We never talked politics out there. I never talked politics with Michelle. But something happened, and I'm afraid, because I don't have any information, I have to (laughs) make my own inferences here, that, yeah, it was the over-intense avatar cranked up to 15 or 20 instead of 5. Regardless, something happened at that point. And moving toward 2012, 2013, and up into 2014, I, th- I think I started to get, you know, I'd have to go back and think about this. But they're not the only ones. I mean, if I have to, if I, uh, let me rewind a bit. Let me, let me partially reset. I started this segment saying that I was going to talk about the damage that I had done. I'm afraid that this is a very significant example of that. The damage that I had done with that social media avatar. And things that I said that maybe hadn't been directed at any of these folks, any of these people, didn't have them in mind at all. But Chris made a really good point, podcast Chris, on one of the episodes we did a couple of weeks ago where he said that when you're reading a text, a tweet, a Facebook post, you apply the emotion to it. Not the writer. A tweet is in the eye of the beholder. Whatever emotion they decide to project onto that tweet is how it's going to be read. There's no context. There's no emotion, no inflection, no facial expressions. It's just dead text. They will interpret it however they choose to or however they're feeling at that particular moment or however insecure they're feeling about the relationship or what you think of them. They're going to apply their own emotion to everything you post. If you're not crystal clear in explaining everything, have you ever had an, had an experience where you're having a conversation online with someone, posting back and forth and back and forth, and you get this impression that whoever is on the other end isn't reading what you're writing? Like they're coming back with some, what? Where the hell did you get that from? I didn't write that. I think that's where this comes from. I think they have got something in their mind some emotional projection that they're applying to the text and interpreting it through that lens. You have to remember that. We, I'm not, no, 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 I'm not doing that. We all have to remember that. That what you write 
and what you post, you're not saying. This isn't a verbal conversation that you're having with someone. And if you're not careful, there are going to be unintended consequences as people project what they choose to project onto it. To wrap the family thing up, I don't know what happened. All I can do is speculate. All I can do is assume. But yeah, something definitely happened to me after that. And I think that like this PTSD stuff that I was talking about, if that's exactly if that's actually what it is, I'm not 100% sure it is. That's what it feels like. That's what I'm going to call it. Call Dr. Phil if you want to want me to re-diagnose myself. I think that ties into that. I think it ties in a combination of that with a lot of other things and a lot of other people that have been blown up, relationships blown up by my avatar over the last several years. It reminds me of going out, getting raging drunk and ending a friendship. Doing something to somebody. You know, I have a friend who was blown up in a firework explosion 22 years ago. He was my roommate. We played softball together, friends playing baseball growing up. We went out one night, got drunk, had an argument over a fucking snake. Oh, fucking things. Just a stupid drunken argument. He's behind me in the back seat. I turn around and pop him in the head. Cut his forehead. I went home and I sort of tended to him, sort of dressed the wound and all that. I felt really shitty about it. But that friendship was never the same after that. Right? Just stupid shit you do when you're drunk sometimes has long, far-reaching consequences. Hello, I know these things. I'm an expert here. You need to listen to me on this. <laughs> right? But he died a couple of years later, and it's always eaten at me. That night has always eaten at me. I didn't know he was going to die, of course. But I, he did. And I ruined the friendship for all intents and purposes. It was never the same after that. And rightfully so. I'm not lamenting. I'm not crying about it. I deserve that. But for 22 years, that's my, I still have dreams about this guy. Still. Not bad dreams. Not like he's haunting me or anything like that. But it, it, it eats at me. And it feels the same. It, 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 the, the, the psychology. I'm telling you, it feels the fucking same. You get on there. I get on Twitter. I get on I don't do Twitter too much. I don't bother with Twitter. When I get on Facebook, when I have historically got on Facebook and I get rolling, it feels like the same as I did when I got drunk and didn't care. And this has happened a couple other times. And maybe this is part of it. Maybe this is part of what's going on and why this is finally triggering something that's actually going to stick this time. Because it, it, Matt wasn't the only one. That was the, the one where I, I hate to say it was the guilty party, but we'll say it anyway. It's a podcast, right? <laughs> but it's happened a couple other times with politics. One guy, not the brightest <laughs> lamp at the lamp store, but decided that all of a sudden he was going to become a political commentator. And he was posting some of the stupidest stuff you can imagine. Just really dumb, infantile, ridiculous stuff. Obviously recycling something he'd seen someplace else. But he was an opinionated guy from the time that he was a young kid. He was going to say what he thought. I should have never expected this to be any different. There were tools that I could have used to silence him. Could have put him on mute. Instead, I was in the height of my resistance days, right after Trump's inauguration, but before my excommunication after the Rachel Maddow episode. So it was between January and March of 2017, and I executed a purge, one of my famous, infamous purges. And he was gone. I'm like, okay, I'm not listening to any more of this Trump shit. You're gone. Bye. See ya. Done. Never talked to him again. He sent me a friend request. It's still in my Facebook account. I haven't deleted it. Uh, sometime last summer. I did not respond to it. I left it sit there. I'm like, I don't want to deal with your fucking shit, man. I don't want to hear any of this. Stop it. Well, it turns out in December, had a massive heart attack, died. This is a guy who was very good. He was the brother of a very good friend of mine. I'd known this kid, this guy, not a kid anymore, since... I was probably eight. We weren't on bad terms. We got along fine. We were fine before politics reared its ugly head and interjected itself into the relationship. 
we weren't great friends. I hadn't seen him since the mid-90s, not in person, but we were friendly. Now he's dead. Now I've got that Facebook friend request sitting in my profile, reminding me of all this. That's not all. The same thing happened with another friend. A much, much, much closer friend. This one mattered a lot. He was one of my best friends. Probably my most loyal friend. And this is a guy that I had seen. This is the one guy over the last 22 years since I moved away from there that I went and actually went out of my way to see the most. I liked this guy. I loved this guy. He was the most authentic person. Love him or hate him, he did not care. And it was real. This wasn't show. I respected him. I appreciated the loyalty, especially where I came where I come from. Loyalty is a big deal to me and he oozed it. But he was doing the same thing to a lesser degree than the other guy was. Right around the same time. And here comes the purge. And he got swept up in it as well. We exchanged a couple of uh, messages, like on Messenger, here and there. But he wasn't really, because he was out of the Facebook feed and out of the friends list, he wasn't a high point of contact at that point. I found out in March, and in March he'd been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. It's an aggressive form of cancer. And he was gone within six or seven weeks. I thought I had more time to get down there to see him. I never saw him again. And now he's gone. How many other friendships have been ruined or tainted by politics, by the avatars, however you want to look at it? How many more are there? How many more times am I going to sit here at this fucking microphone lamenting how Facebook and social media and these inaccurate, over-amplified presentations of who we want people to think we fucking are, how many more people are going to be lost to that? How much more time is going to be needlessly and senselessly lost to this with people that fucking matter? This isn't the last time this is going to happen. I know it. There are too many people in this Facebook boneyard, the metaphorical one, for this not to happen again and again and again. And I fucking hate it. I fucking hate it. Eddie's funeral was um, second week of April. I couldn't go. I could not go. I didn't go to the visitation. I didn't go to the funeral. Because I was just riddled with this PTSD-esque anxiety. I could not bring myself to go to one of my best friend's funerals. Half of it was because I felt ashamed of how that relationship sort of petered out. Now, to be fair, we didn't know that he was going to be dead so soon. Nobody saw this coming at all. He was 51, for Christ's sakes. He wasn't that old. But 51 isn't young anymore either. I thought there was more time with him. I did intend to go see him again. I did intend sometime to reactivate the friendship to what it was or what the best it could be anyway. I didn't. And now he's gone. So... I think there was an element of shame involved there that I didn't. Guilt. It triggered some anxiety, but a lot of it, I'm telling you, I did not want to see a lot of people. And right or wrong, and I, I, I assume, I, rationally, I know I'm overreacting to this, but a lot of it had to do, and has to do, with the fact that people have only known me for 12 years over this fucking internet connection and through that Facebook profile. I have given these people a completely bastardized version and impression of who I am. And to be perfectly honest with you, 
I did not want to endure the grief and the guilt and the sorrow of going to one of my best friend's funerals and having to endure the anxiety over how people are looking at me because of what I projected to them. It was overwhelming. I couldn't do it. It's one of those things. It's like you get to a point, you have to make a decision whether or not you know it's the right thing to do. You know goddamn well if you don't go, you're going to feel like shit for the rest of your life. This is not something you can correct. You can't make this right. If you skip this funeral, you can't go back and redo it. There's only one funeral for your friend. I still, even sitting at that precipice, knowing that I was caving into fear, anxiety, and all that, I could not do it. What the fuck is going on here? This is mass insanity. What the fuck are we doing? What the fuck have I been doing? I don't know. The best thing that I can come up with is that I have been drunk for 11 years. And I'm finally starting to wake up with a headache. I'm finally starting to wake up with that that sense of shame. That, oh, geez, did I really do that last? Oh, <laughs> oh, geez, cringe. I've got a tape. I've got a lot of tapes, but I've never watched it. <laughs> but it's a tape that we uh, we took a video camera to a friend's wedding in Florida, 2004, and I got hammered. I mean, I got hammered, and I was an obnoxious little shit that night. I some of my friends have seen that side of me when I drink. Where I just, I'm not funny. I'm just a dickhead. <laughs> An obnoxious dickhead. Again, I don't care. Woo, I'll just say anything. Yeah. Just like the Avatar. And my girlfriend was taping it. It's on one of those high eight tapes. And it's been in a box, unwatched. I don't even think it's been rewound since 2004. But I'm afraid to watch it because I know that I'll sit down. And I'll see what I was doing and how I was behaving and a sense of overwhelming regret, self-contempt, and just raw, pure shame will come over me. I can't watch it. This is how a lot of what I've been doing feels right now. I'm finally starting to see it. And I'll relapse every now and then. It's like going to the bar and taking a shot of Jameson. Nah, fuck it. Every now and then. But I'm finding that when I do that, more often than not, especially in the last month, six weeks or so, I'll immediately go back in there, maybe leave it up for 10 minutes and take it down. Just get rid of it. I'm doing the same thing when I do comment on Twitter. Yeah, no, this needs to go. Stop it. Stop it. I'm retraining myself. I think that's exactly what's happening. I think I'm training myself like a slap on the hand. No, no, no. So I guess if I put a bow on this, I never got to what the hell I was going to get to today. Again, I think this is good, though. But if I were to put a bow on this, yeah, I think that if if you're looking for, personally, for me, I'm only going to speak from, well, obviously for myself. I've been talking about myself the entire episode. But I think that would offer a possible glimmer of hope that maybe it's finally taken. Maybe it's taking. Maybe the process is finally getting to the point where it'll work. I don't know. I have to try. I'm telling you, this thing with Ed, my friend, (laughs) I hate that. I hate it with every fiber of my being, and it cannot be undone. These relationships, when they're gone, if they mean anything to you, if you're sacrificing them to politics on the internet, something's wrong. Something is terribly, terribly, terribly wrong. And I think the only thing (laughs) that can accurately explain it 
We're fucking hammered drunk, man. Hammered drunk, don't know what the hell we're doing. We just feel good doing it. And that will take us, I promise you, I say this from experience, that sort of mentality, that sort of attitude will take us nowhere good. I've got the lack of a driver's license to prove it. Those two things are connected, I think. I'd like to know what you think, but I'm taking everything down. You don't have any comment access. That's what, We'll get to that next time, too. That's an important thing. Anyway, this has been the Escaping the Cave podcast. Sorry, Andrew, I didn't get to your stuff this time. That's how it goes. Don't know what to tell you. We'll get to it next time, maybe. Escaping the Cave podcast, ChristopherMedia.net network. You can also check out the uh, EDC pod uh, profile over on Twitter. Forget the Facebook page. That thing's going to be nuked in the next day or two. And all the uh, podcatchers out there as well. One more time, if you get, you're getting this one from the Facebook page, update those subscriptions. This is your last reminder. I promise you that. No. I may record another one. Try to get one out tomorrow. If not, probably early next week. So, till then, so long. <laughs>